the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another episode of Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya. Please hit subscribe. We've got so much good content. And if you haven't heard some stuff from the past, you'll find it right there when you subscribe and all the good stuff we have in the future, including today. James Rosen is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and also the author of a fabulous new book called Scalia Rise to Greatness. And it covers a, a period of Justice Antonin Scalia's life while he was making his way to becoming a Supreme Court judge or justice, I should say. He was a judge prior to that. Then you get to the Supreme Court and you are a justice. And this is what Scalia achieved. He is one of the most prominent Supreme Court justices uh, of his time and maybe ever to serve on the Supreme Court. Uh, he had a great impact on jurisprudence in this country and how people present at the Supreme Court. It is really a fascinating read, and we're going to give you some insights to it now, some stories you may have never known about Antonin Scalia, including what kind of driver he was. James Rosen is next. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. James Rosen, author of the book and, of course, chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. It's great to see you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Scalia, the rise rise to greatness. I was always a fan of Antonin Scalia, just um, his, his writings, his opinions. He seemed to me to be uh, someone that you could also just have a beer with. You've been around a lot of great people. What was he like just as a as a guide, to, I know you've driven in a car with him. What was he like? Well, first, Michelle, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here with you and to discuss the book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. Uh, I was privileged to know Justice Scalia a little bit. One of the first things I did when I became a young Washington correspondent back in 1999 and first came to town uh, at the time working for Fox News was to write to Justice Scalia and to seek an interview with him. Uh, this is because I had watched him on television in high school way back in the 1980s, and I always found him fascinating. He spoke in a way that non-lawyers could understand, but he was also lively and humorous and not afraid to be sarcastic. Um, and so that's why I wrote to him when I first came to town in 1999. This commenced between us an unusual uh, and sometimes amusing correspondence that went on for the better part of two years. And it also meant that we got together for lunch twice, just the two of us, one-on-one -on -one each time. Uh, and you ask what he was like. It was like uh, what I imagine dining with Paul Sorvino would have been like, you know, that this was you could be <laughs> forgiven for forgetting from time to time that you were in the company of one of the great minds of our times uh, and that you were just perhaps ha having lunch with your avuncular Italian uncle. Uh, but on those occasions, we drank wine. 
He made me eat off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. No, no, no. Come on, come on, come on. So there I was shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate into my mouth at the age of 30. And he even drove me back to my office both times in his car. And I've been able to confirm in my research, Michelle, that being a passenger in Antonin Scalia's car, either for the students who uh, traveled with him for debate tournaments way back in the 1950s, all the way up through Supreme Court clerks into the 21st century, it was as unnerving an experience for them as it was for me. Uh, There was a a touch of road rage there. But see, he was so generous Uh, to a young reporter uh, all those years ago. I hope in the second volume, which chronicles his Supreme Court tenure, to be able to quote from some of our letters, the substantive discussions we had during those lunches uh, at the AV Ristorante Italiano, a very modest place, now long gone, that was his favorite place to go in what was then a sketchy part of Washington, D.C. The substantive discussions will remain off the record as they were. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, that is a fascinating relationship and kudos to you for striking, you know, striking it up, uh, being the instigator and in writing the letter. I have found that handwritten notes to professional athletes in my day covering the NFL and the NBA uh, is a very, not many people do it. And so it stands out to some of these people. And I would imagine uh, that may have been the case. I'm curious as to if you had any similar relationship with any other justice hmm. or or this was the, the singular one of its kind. So uh, if you count sitting justices, former justices, and future justices, I've interviewed six or seven of them at this point. Um, I conducted uh, the last interview ever with uh, retired Chief Justice Warren Berger. Um, for my work at the time on a biography of John Mitchell, who was the attorney general who went to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. Uh, That book was called The Strong Man, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate. And I interviewed uh, Chief Justice Berger at his home. Uh, He was advanced in age. He was ill, but he was still sharp in memory and and had certainly the the sharp tongue that he was known for. Uh, And he died about six months after that. And I published an Mm op-ed about him and about that experience um, in the Washington Post when I was still in grad school at Northwestern Medill School of Journalism. This would be, gosh, um, the the late months of 1995. It's it's remarkable. I'm wondering what it was about Scalia. You said you had been a fan watching him uh, when you were in high school, which I just, uh, it it makes me imagine uh, you were very, interested and curious high school student. Just say, just say nerdy. I know the word you're looking for. (laughs) Let's just say it. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
my son has a has a has a classmate they're juniors in high school and this kid all he wants to do is be a judge there it's if he could leapfrog every other part he he's got his mindset on being a judge at the ripe age of 17 so uh i'd put maybe he's with you in that class but but why of why Justice Scalia? What was it about him that you saw that captured your imagination so much? Again, he was he spoke in a in a layman's language. He spoke like uh, what he was, which was a kid from Queens, and he never lost sight of that fact. Um, he said yeah. that one of the central lessons he learned on the streets of Queens in the 1940s and 50s, growing up, was the world ain't always fair. Um, his opinions mm. were written purposefully uh, to communicate to audiences beyond the law. Um, and uh, for, so, for example, you know, once as a justice, he testified before Congress, they were reviving an old agency that Scalia had once headed in the 1970s called the Administrative Conference of the United States. It's like a quasi think tank that exists for the executive branch uh, to try and promote better, uh, better, effect, more effective um, administration for the federal agencies like the FCC and uh, the Food and Drug Administration and so on. And uh, many years later in 2010, he was testifying uh, before a House committee on their plans to revive that agency. And one of the lawmakers said, Justice Scalia, you know, the person who's going to be the, the, uh, the chairman of the administrative conference, who's going to have the same job you held back in the 70s, is seated only a few rows behind you. What advice do you have for him? And Scalia replied, do good and avoid evil. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it just speaks to the kind of lively wit that he had. Uh, but it goes yeah. beyond his personal characteristics. The fact is that uh, Antonin Scalia is one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years. And the, the reason why is, of course, uh, not only because of the years captured in my book, which takes him up to the age of 50 and his ascension to the Supreme Court. And he lived a very important life and, and, and had many important jobs in government, which we'll talk about, I hope, before uh, we conclude. But um, obviously for his, his 29-plus terms on the Supreme Court, um, his uh, revolution in the way that lawyers argue before courts, in the way that judges and justices write their opinions, even in the way that lawmakers craft laws, is profound and it touches on every area of American life today. When Scalia came along on the federal bench, he was appointed to the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in 1982 by President Reagan. And when J Judge Scalia sat on that court, it was a real murderer's row, Michelle, of legal talent you had also serving as judges on that court at that time. Robert Bork, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Kenneth Starr, Lawrence Silberman, and others. Um, Wow. And when Scalia came along as a judge, there prevailed in the law a liberal notion called the living constitution. This is the idea that the, the meaning of the constitution or any statute passed since then doesn't stay fixed in time, what it was when it was enacted, when it was voted on by the people's representatives and signed into law by the, the elected president. Um, rather, the liberal judges and scholars believed that the meaning of the constitution or any statute since then should expand like a living, breathing organism to account for modern yeah. phenomena that the, that the Founding Fathers could never have envisioned, such as nuclear weapons or the Internet. And in order to breathe this new life uh, into this expanded meaning of the Constitution or a given statute, liberal judges would look beyond the text at hand and look to what they call the legislative intent. What was said in all of those House and Senate floor debates? What was printed in all those committee reports as a given measure snaked its way through the process to become a law? Scalia stood athwart all of that. Uh, his view was that the legislative intent 
was the actual law that they voted on and passed. Nobody voted on a floor debate. Nobody voted on a committee or even read the committee reports. The only thing that matters is the law that they actually um, passed and signed. And the, uh, the judges, this was Scalia's idea, when doing their central business, which is interpreting the meaning of the Constitution or given statutes, that's what judges do. They interpret the meaning of the Constitution or a law. Uh, Scalia's view was that they should adhere in those interpretations to the original meaning of the Constitution or the law, uh, what it was widely understood to mean at the time, because he did not want unelected judges and justices uh, usurping power that they shouldn't have and grafting their latter-day sensibilities or policy preferences onto an existing law uh, or text of a law that was voted up or down and signed by a president. Uh, to do so, in Scalia's view, was in essence to tr travel back in time and rob an entire generation of their democratic rights of self-governance. Uh, if, if there's someone today who liked very much the law that President Biden signed last year, let's say uh, the one protecting legally uh, same-sex marriages, um, how would the supporters of that action feel if 10 years from now or 50 years from now or 200 years from now, a group of unelected judges or justices could come along and say, well, actually, we think, given modern phenomena, that that law should be, the meaning of it should be expanded to say X or Y. Um, this was called mm -hmm. originalism. And how best to... Right, or textualist, well, yeah. Uh, so this is, you know, we don't want to dance on the head of a pin, but um, okay. it took a lot of work for me, who's a non-lawyer, and this book is written for non-lawyers, to, to parse this out. How best to discern, should a judge discern what the original meaning of a law was? And Scalia's answer was, the text. You don't have to go back to the debates. <laughs> you don't have to go back to the committee reports that nobody read or voted on. The best uh, way to find the original meaning of the Constitution or a given statute is through its text. So it's originalism, as I put it in the book, with textualism as the metal detector that you use to find okay. that original meaning. Um, and again, by the time that Scalia died, Michelle, no less a figure than Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, proclaimed that in effect, as a result of Scalia's revolution in the way that we write, think about, and judge and interpret the law, as she put it, quote, we are all originalists now. And that's why he is one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years, because that sea change in the way we think about and write about and decide the law, as I say, affects every area of American life today. Do you agree with uh, Justice Kagan that, in fact, they are all originalists and, and that this is something that is sort of set for future generations? Well, you've got three justices on the Supreme Court who are certainly not avowed originalists today. Um, Scalia, I think, might have gone to his grave more pessimistic about um, the prevalence of originalism and whether he had succeeded in his evangelistic mission. Um, but when to hear Justice Kagan say that is profound and important. Um, we are all originalists now. And what she meant by that is very seldom will you see a lawyer stand before the justices at the Supreme Court for oral argument and begin by referring to the legislative history or the legislative intent. Almost always now they mm. begin with the text of the law and reason their way forward from that. And that is Scalia's legacy, and it's a profound one. I agree. It is profound, and it, 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 it seems very, um, in addition to being quite wise. It, it seems very commonsensical yes. to me. I want to get, I want to get into the relationship uh, with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is, is, is quite 
at least well known that that relationship was was wonderful and friendly and um and and also just in uh, some of the other details that you managed to call while you were doing some of this work we'll take a quick break and come back with James Rosen Okay, so if you're tired of looking tired, join my club. I'm the president of that club. And that's where GenuCell comes into play. This is my skincare line that I want to tell you about. Not mine, but one made right here in America. And I rely on GenuCell for so many things. Um, it's formulated by a pharmacist with really high quality ingredients. And the products are sure to not only smooth out fine lines and wrinkles, but prevent new ones from, from forming. One of my favorites is this deep firming serum. And it is just what it sounds like, but it's got stem cell technology. You just put a, a couple of drops of this serum on your fingertips, rub it into cleansed skin, and suddenly your, your, your face, just your skin, it feels more plump, more uh, young, more toned. It's just miraculous. So I apply it after I've cleansed with the deep sea cleanser, which is soap free, which is amazing. Now, right now you can save over 70% off GenuCell's most popular package just in time for the warm spring weather. And this is featuring GenuCell's Ultra Retinol that contains a powerful retinol alternative safe on your skin in the summer sun. And it also includes GenuCell's Dark Spot Corrector to reduce the appearance of dark, the appearance of dark marks and sunspots from those fabulous long summer days outdoors that we love, but we don't always like the side effects. So GenuCell. Plus, you'll still get GenuCell's classic under eye bags therapy for those annoying under eye bags and that puffiness that we all get. And with its immediate effects, you will see results in as little as 12 hours guaranteed or your money back. How about that? Don't wait. Visit GenuCell.com slash Michelle. That's Michelle with one L. Save over 70% off their most popular package. Plus, every order subscription includes a luxury gift box with two free springtime essentials. That's two free gifts plus free concierge shipping for a limited time. So go to GenuCell.com slash Michelle. That's GenuCell, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, and enjoy. James Rosen, again, author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, and also the White House correspondent, chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, spending all the time that you did, I mean, not only with Justice Scalia, which to me is, wow, what what a treasured gift that is for you to have in your life, but also in, in studying for this, to, to write this book. I would imagine you came across some stuff that most people didn't know before that you didn't know before breaking a little bit of some stories. What, what's a, what's an example of something that maybe came out that you thought didn't know this. Well, first, Michelle, what I found is that there were two existing biographies of justice Scalia. Both of them were published when he was still alive. One of them, he cooperated with extensively the other, not at all. And both of them turned out pretty much in the same place, which is to say fairly open in their hostility to Justice Scalia and his jurisprudence and his legacy and his conduct. Uh, this is the first book, uh, the first biography of uh, Antonin Scalia published since his death. It makes use of a vast array of documentary and personal sources that were either unavailable to or overlooked by the previous hostile biographers. And I like to say that it's really the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it is the first admiring one of him. Um, the, the two previous books either skipped over important chapters of his life entirely 
or treated whatever uh, episodes and phases that they did cover uh, in the most tendentious light possible. Um, so uh, in terms of the documentary sources that this book draws on that have never been seen before, there's a few I'd love to tell you about. One is, um, in 1992, his seventh term on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia welcomed in a female attorney whom he had known for many years to conduct an oral history of his life with him. Um, and uh, they started at, at, the birth of, at his birth and, and, and his immigrant experience of his father and so on. Uh, and carried forward all the way until around the 1970s. Uh, there was supposed to be a second session with the oral history interviewer, and there never was. But nonetheless, this secret oral history that Justice Scalia conducted in his Supreme Court chambers in 1992 had not been unsealed until 2018. So this is the first book to make use of it. And it helped me correct certain basic errors in the previous books, which, for example, asserted either that he moved from Trenton, New Jersey, where he was born, uh, to Queens, New York, at the age of three or the age of six, when in fact he is explicit in the oral history in saying that he moved when he was five. That's just one example. Um, this is the first book to make use of Scalia's FBI files, which were declassified after his death in 2016. Uh, Scalia, as he rose through the executive and judicial branches, was subjected to four FBI background checks within 14 years, from 1972 to 1986. They run hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh, and on these occasions, the vast machinery of the world's preeminent law enforcement organization was cranked up with agents fanned out across the country, interviewing everyone who had ever known Scalia, dating back to when he was 13 years old in 1949, all in an effort to uh, locate any kind of derogatory information that might exist anywhere in the world about Antonin Scalia. And these pages run hundreds, these files run hundreds of pages. And in the end, no derogatory information about Antonin Scalia was ever turned up for the simple reason that none existed. Hmm. He was a devout Catholic, he and his wife Maureen, who's a hero of this book, uh, and they lived exemplary lives. Page after page after page, you see the agents being told the same things. This is the most brilliant intellectual man I've ever met. This is the most honest man I've ever met. Not just this man is qualified for federal judgeship, this man is the most qualified person for a federal judgeship you could possibly imagine. And as I say in the book, would that all lives paid such close scrutiny, rewarded with such superlative testimonials as Antonin Scalia's did in the FBI files. Yeah. One last set of documents. There's more I'd love to tell you about, but I don't want to take up all our time. Um, this is what I call the RBG Nino Papers. You mentioned earlier the Justice's famous celebrated friendship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They were the best of friends. They spent every New Year's together with their spouses. They attended the opera together. They went riding elephants in India together. <laughs> Um, I even saw, and it's mentioned all the time, the Scalia-Ginsburg model, uh, where you have uh, ideological combatants who maintain their civility and remain the best of friends. And that is in certainly a, an instructive example, especially in our time of such rancorous national Absolutely. politics. Yeah. But the, their famous friendship, I even saw a, um, a life coach urging us all to go out and find the Ginsburg for our inner Scalia. Um, <laughs> what's less commonly known is that this famous friendship did not begin on the Supreme Court. It began when they both served on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. I was going to ask you that when yeah. you mentioned that murderer's row, yes. Yes. So this is one rung below the marble temple of the Supreme Court. Uh, it's often described as the second most powerful court in America. It is the number one breeding ground for future justices. And from 1982 to 86, Scalia, Judge Scalia at the time, served alongside 
Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She actually predated him on that court by two years, having been appointed by Jimmy Carter. And I'm the first researcher to go through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 220-plus boxes of papers at the Library of Congress. Her Supreme Court papers remain closed, and almost all of Justice Scalia's papers remain closed. I did work with the archivists uh, for his papers, which is uh, which are at the Harvard Law School Library, to get out of the, the, the archives some documents, some photographs. But by and large, uh, Scalia's papers remain closed to the point where, when I asked the archivists at Harvard if they could help me nail down the date of my second and final lunch with Justice Scalia, which occurred, I told them, in the fall term of 2001, they politely replied that, no, they couldn't help me because that segment of Justice Scalia's papers won't be open until 2032. <laughs> but Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers for the, the Court of Appeals period are open. Mm. And the handwritten notes, Michelle, the documents, the, the, the memos, the correspondence, the draft opinions that flew back and forth between the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia in those years in the 1980s when they served as appellate court judges together, uh, they're by far and away the most affectionate and playful of, of uh, any two judges on that court at that time. I also went through the papers of Judge Robert Bork, who served alongside them and, and others. Uh, they're probably the most affectionate and playful between any two judges on any court at any time. Uh, they capture not only these two legal geniuses squaring off over the fine points of the First Amendment, but also their, their sparkling wits, uh, their affection for each other. And I like to say that when you read these papers, what I call the RBG Nino papers in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, you will see in real time, in their own words, the birth and the blossoming of this famous friendship. It's really, really interesting. And, and you wonder why it is in such short supply and why more people don't find that. They, clearly, there had to have been other things that connected them, that sort of this playfulness you, you mentioned, this affection. It, it you know... I, I'm certain that it wasn't anything beyond that, but I, I'm, it's really, really interesting to think about what else may have been at play there. Do you have any theories about why these two were so, so connected as they were? They had a lot in common. They both uh, were ethnics. They both um, were geniuses. They, um, um, you know, they both loved family life. Um, and uh, they both loved opera and so on. But to me, it's important to remember what really gave rise to this friendship. It was the work. It was born of work. Mm -hmm. Work, and specifically the law, was the space in, uh, of, in, of human endeavor in which this extraordinary friendship um, uh, arose and flourished. And um, almost immediately... And again, these, these papers have never been published until now. You can see as soon as Scalia joins that court, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg taking an almost maternal uh, tone in her treatment of Scalia, worrying uh, repeatedly and needlessly if his workload was too great for him, offering to switch cases if he couldn't handle his workload. <laughs> um, at the same time, you see her uh, quelling over some of his opinions. Uh, you see her needling him. Um, you see her flattering him, cajoling him, provoking him. For his part, you see that Scalia, perhaps uniquely with, with Judge Ginsburg at that time, could uh, let down an argument, let up an argument a little bit and let down his hair. And so at one point he apologizes to her for uh, providing one of his draft opinions late, quote, sloth that I am. 
Um, when she says, gosh, Nino, if you would just change your position on point A here in this opinion, uh, we could be unanimous. And he scribbles on her memorandum and sends it back to her chambers with his handwriting annotated saying, let's be unanimous. Um, he heaped praise on her opinions so superlative in nature that it was probably unknown to his brightest students or clerks, possibly even to the Scalia children, saying things like, I could suggest no improvements, excellent as usual. Um, and so um, there's, there's, uh, there's even, you know, within a year of him joining that court, uh, Ginsburg feels comfortable enough with Scalia to disparage in writing the work of the only other female judge on the court at that time, later destined to serve as the chief judge, Patricia Wald, saying PMW is least effective when she's advocating for her own view. Um, and yet at the same time that all of this is going on, uh, the record shows that RBG would be quietly, uh, in essence, behind Scalia's back, writing to Judge Bork and saying, here's how we have to address Nino's challenge. Uh, so it's just really rich material. But when you ask what brought them together, in a word, it was the work. Mm. Interesting. It's just fascinating. There's so much here that you've detailed and and I just and you've detailed his legacy. And um, I guess we'll leave with this. Well, first, I have this question and then we'll we'll wrap. But the, the two biographers that you talked about, one with whom he co collaborated or cooperated, uh, cooperated, we should say, and the other with whom he did not. Why would he collaborate or cooperate? Excuse me. Thank you for that correction. Why would he cooperate with a, a biographer? Did he know that it was a hostile point of view coming after him? So the, the person who wrote the very first biography of Antonin Scalia was Joan Biskupic, uh, who was a reporter who covered the Supreme Court for Reuters, then the Washington Post, and now is the chief legal analyst for CNN. Um, and um, I did speak with Justice Scalia about Joan Biskupic during those off-the-record conversations, and I'm just not at liberty to say what he had to say about her. Uh, her book didn't exist at that time. It was 10 years before her book came out. And credit has to be given to Joan Biskupic for writing the first biography, for building that template. Um, but uh, I think probably like a lot of nonfiction subjects who collaborate with authors writing about them, he probably thought it was going to turn out better than it did. Hmm. Um, but as one of Justice Scalia's clerks describes to me in one of the footnotes in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, in essence, what Biskupic did was she went um, area by area of the law, whether it was First Amendment, religion cases, um, affirmative action cases, national security, and so on. And as the clerk put it, trashed Justice Scalia's jurisprudence in each case and, and made clear that if she were the justice writing the opinions, they would have turned out very differently. And that's really not the, the best way to acquaint audiences with um, – with the, the subject matter himself and with the legacy that, that he brought to this country. The second uh, book um, was published in 2014 by a liberal law professor named Bruce Allen Murphy. Um, and Murphy succeeded in getting a lot of documents out of the Reagan library that had never been published before. And he did impressive work on Scalia's um, family ancestry. Um, but by and large, again, it's a hostile book. It, it, it begins with a scene of uh, Barack Obama's second inaugural and a funny-looking hat that Scalia wore in the, in the freezing cold of January of uh, 2013. 
um, uh, which the author posited as an example of Scalia desperately trying to grab attention for himself. And in fact, the hat uh, was similar to one worn by Scalia's hero, Sir Thomas More, uh, mm. the subject of the play, A Man for All Seasons, mm. um, the, the Catholic um, who famously refused to participate in the annulment of one of King Henry VIII's previous marriages and who gave his life for his faith. Uh, and who was therefore one of Scalia's heroes. And that was the sole reason why he wore that hat. It had nothing to do with trying to steal attention away from the President of the United States on the occasion of his second inaugural, which would be a, probably an impossible task for just about <laughs> anyway, anyone. Anyway, yeah. Except yeah. For, perhaps for the First Lady. Um, and so um, uh, Scalia didn't cooperate at all with that book. And again, as I like to say, this is the book that Scalia fans have been waiting for. It's by no means a hagiography. It takes account of Scalia's human flaws, uh, his swiftness to anger, um, his obstinacy at times. Uh, but it's, I call it the first accurate book about him because it is the first admiring book about him. Interesting. It's, it's always so difficult for me when I'm approaching biographies of people that I want to learn about to know which one to choose, you know? So you're, you are certainly um, making a, a great case for this one. Scalia, Rise to Greatness is the book. James Rosen is the author. He's also the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. And we so appreciate you spending the time. I hope people go and get a look at this book. And you said a second volume, huh? That's the plan. The person who was least pleased by the uh, metastasizing of this project from a concise <laughs> biography of Antonin Scalia into a massive two-volume study, of course, was Mrs. Rosen. Uh, who, with, who, with a, a, a great deal of, of common sense, resents the two-year extension on our lives of Justice Scalia. <laughs> but uh, that gives me incentive to finish it quickly. There we go. There we go. Well, we'll look forward to it I, and, and enjoy perusing this one and finishing it as well. James Rosen, thank you so much for your time. The book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. And uh, I will say what I always say when I sign off from Sideline Sanity here is be brave because Justice Scalia was certainly that, and do good, which I, I say every time. And James, you just mentioned it, that he said, do good and do no evil. I, I do good is is one of my sign-offs. And uh, so I guess I have that in common with Antonin Scalia. Thank you, James. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.